0: One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do
1: more with Viator. Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini-series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around, generative AI. Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry.
2: It's finally here. The Trump administration, after teasing it for months, maybe even years, depending on how you time it, has released its vision for Israel-Palestine peace. And it turns out it's it's not so much a peace plan as it is a give-everything-Israel-it-wants plan and then hope that that leads to something that might be better. We'll get into whether there's actually any real aspirations for peacemaking in this plan and what it actually proposes today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham here with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey. Hi, team. Hello. We have a special guest today. Uh, that is Khaled El Gindi. He is a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute and one of America's top experts on Israel Palestine related things. Uh, he's like blanching when I say that, but <laughs> welcome, Khaled. Welcome.
3: Thanks. Good to be here.
2: The plan, it's here. It's been called, uh, depending on what you look at from prosperity to peace, the deal of the century is a term that I think Trump came up with and everyone's making fun of. It also calls itself the vision inside the text. So, uh, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about what it actually does. I've set this up to be pretty bad, right? So Khalid, run us through, run down the, uh, sort of big picture, rules of the game as laid out in the deal
3: yeah so the the plan lays out what it calls a uh, vision for a two-state solution in theory Uh, at least that's how they're they're couching it so the palestinian state that they're describing basically would consist of uh, about 70 percent of the west bank um, in kind of uh, fragmented uh, areas that are linked together through a network of tunnels and bridges and various uh, infrastructure, but not actually territorially contiguous, um, uh, in addition to some swaps uh, in, inside Israel um, in the south as well as um, a little bit in the north. Um, so that's the centerpiece of their plan, which is this Palestinian state that is essentially completely surrounded by Israel. So that's on uh, on territory. Uh, on security, Israel would have full control over everything between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, including the airspace, territorial waters, electromagnetic sphere, um, entry and exit points, um, the Palestinian, quote, state would not have the ability to enter into treaties uh, with, uh, with foreign countries. Um, and of course, Israel has overriding security control over the entire blanket uh, area. Um, on Jerusalem, Jerusalem is exclusively Israel's capital. Uh, Palestinians would be allowed to have a capital near Jerusalem. They could call it Jerusalem if they so desired, but it would be outside. The, the plan is pretty clear that it would be outside of the security barrier or the wall, as Palestinians call it. And uh, the plan is also explicit on the third major issue, final status issue, which is Palestinian refugees. And uh, it states pretty clearly that no single Palestinian refugee would be allowed to return to to their homes in Israel and instead would have the choice between going back to uh, the Palestinian entity to be resettled uh, where they are uh, in neighboring Arab states or uh, in third countries. Um, And some sort of compensation package would be put together um, uh, over the long term. All of this is contingent on obviously Palestinian uh, acceptance, but more importantly, the Palestinian um, entity could not come into being until A whole array of uh, conditions had been met, the disarming of Hamas, um, uh, a long list of fiscal reforms, uh, legal reforms uh, that Palestinians have to enact uh, certain kinds of legislation, and the decision as to when Palestinians met that threshold would be decided by Israel. So it's a theoretical quote-unquote state, and one that frankly isn't all that appealing to Palestinians in the first place. And as you said, I mean, pretty much gives Israel everything that it wanted. Um, and and I, I should clarify, it's a wish list not just for Israel, but for Israel's right wing. Specifically, yeah. Right. It's yeah. an
2: important distinction because when, when I'm talking about Israel here, I'm talking about the current government, which does right. not represent the views of m- arguably most of the Israeli public, depending on how you cut the polling, right? I'd say about half, roughly. Yeah, yeah but, but, the latest but, polls are about yeah. half.
3: Yeah, but, you know, pretty— uh, remarkably, the plan has the support of uh, Netanyahu's opposition, uh, the Benny Gantz, the blue and white uh, coalition, and um, even the president of Israel, who's uh, largely in a ceremonial role, but still has influences and is seen as as uh, somewhat of a moderate. Um, uh, and so there is a kind of Israeli consensus uh, in Israeli politics about this is a great plan and we should get on board. Um, I think the only real dissent— on this plan in Israel is coming from the joint list, which of course is predominantly made up of, of Palestinian citizens of Israel, and they're pretty much in the margins of Israeli politics. So, you know, I think it's reflective of just how far to the right Israeli politics has moved uh, in, in recent decades. There is much less support for the, the plan here. We see Democrats especially being quite vocal In opposing it as a sham, as a farce. Um, They're using that sort of language. Both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, for example, um, uh, have criticized the plan. And we've seen a number of progressive members of Congress uh, also come out uh, against the plan. And and I think that reflects a shift that's happening in American politics. But from the standpoint of the Palestinians, this plan does not uh, offer—I mean, it takes all of the issues that they care uh, about—capital in Jerusalem— uh, the refugees, not even a symbolic uh, number of refugees that would be allowed to return, and most importantly, sovereignty, self-determination, right. are all off the table. And so the vision that the Trump plan represents is something more akin, I think, to Bantustans uh, than it is to to anything that we might call a state. And sorry, what's a Bantustan? Well, <laughs> the Bantustans were, in South Africa, these— um, autonomous, supposedly autonomous areas for black South Africans uh, and as a way of segregating them from uh, the white South African minority, but still while claiming the black uh, uh, majority had uh, autonomy or statehood or sovereignty. Um, And so these were sort of um, isolated autonomous areas that were surrounded by uh, South African uh, control. Very, very similar to the plan that was laid out uh, by the Trump administration. So this
4: sounds like apartheid then.
3: Well, that is – that's the critique of it, right, is that it will
2: lead to a permanent apartheid situation formalized and permitted by the United States, right? I think the question of whether or not that is what the Trump people wanted or thought of it is sort of separate and it's whether – I I do think that it's hard to describe the end vision of this plan as anything but that.
5: So I want to kind of step back just for a minute to kind of talk about how the the Trump administration presented this, right? What the – just to kind of give listeners a sense of, you know, how they are trying to sell this deal, um, you know, they essentially said Kushner, Jared Kushner, so that's the White House senior advisor and obviously Trump's son-in-law, he was the – basically the grand architect of this plan, along with a a core group of uh, negotiators well, there weren't really negotiations, but uh, a core group of advisors with him. But they're essentially, his approach was, look, we've had these previous agreements over and over again. We've had all these negotiations. None of them have ever actually led to, you know, complete final status negotiations because all of these previous plans left the nitty-gritty details to the end. They laid out this broad framework, like the Oslo process, um, and basically said, at the very end, then the two sides, the Israelis and the Palestinian leadership in the West Bank, will come together, and you guys will work out the status of Jerusalem. You guys will work out, you know, land swaps in the West Bank, and who, you know, which parts of of the West Bank Israel you know retains and which part, or I guess takes, uh, keeps, uh, and which parts you know will be a contiguous, theoretically Palestinian state. Anyway, so it was basically, we don't want to get into the details, but. Kushner's approach was, look, that didn't work, so I'm going to go ahead and just decide the details for you guys. We're going to sit down. We're going to write down the details. We're going to have a very detailed proposal. And in that sense, he succeeded, right? It is. It does say, no, here, here are the lines that are going to divide—well, divide or not divide Jerusalem, as the case may be. Um, here are the actual pieces of land. You get, you know— uh, Israel gets this thirty percent chunk of the West Bank. Meanwhile, in return, Palestinians, you get these two areas that are undeveloped land in the desert, on the border uh, with Sinai and the border with Egypt. Um, and so that was basically the approach, right? Look, we're going to try this different um, method. We're going to actually, you know, put it out there, and you guys can take it or leave it. Um, the problem is, and we're going to get into that, is that in doing so, they have actually made U.S. policy, stated U.S. policy to be things that we hadn't stated before definitively that that would be something we would support as a final status. We always just said, no, we'll leave it up to you guys. And that has essentially given Netanyahu a green light.
2: So I, I think my, my favorite discussion of the deal from Jared, and there have been many sort of cringeworthy interviews, Alex actually did a good piece on this uh, for Vox, Uh, is the time that he claimed that he read 25 books on the Israel-Palestine conflict to prepare for this. (laughs) So in my head, I've started calling this Jared's book report on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, And I think that 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 sort of encapsulates the degree and care uh, of thought that went into this. Because it's billed as a peace plan, right? But it was done uh, in the way that Jen was describing, without any consultation with one of the two sides that was supposed to sign on, right? Right, like this was done by the Trump administration in consultation with the Israelis, with absolutely zero Palestinian buy-in whatsoever, right? It isn't an attempt to say, okay, here is a mutually agreeable compromise. It's an attempt to dictate terms, right? Right, and and I think the the best piece of commentary. Defending this deal, which I think encapsulates the real spirit of it in a way the Trump administration won't actually say, is this piece in The Washington Post by an Israeli uh, news analyst named Ilan Levy. And he – the title of the piece is Israel won the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Any plan has to reflect that. And the core argument comes a little bit down uh, and I want to read a, a short paragraph because I think it really is sort of an honest encapsulation of what is happening. Throughout history, the victors have always dictated the ultimate terms of peace. Is that fair? Maybe. Is that how the world works in reality? Yes. Conflicts don't end when both sides agree that they are tired of fighting. They end when one side, the loser, recognizes it can't keep up the battle and decides to get what it can before things get worse. And, and there I think it is, right? I, I find this morally repugnant as an argument, right? Like it's basically a claim that any time that somebody is victimized by another side in international politics, they just have to give up, right? And Might there's be, no right. such thing as fairness. Yeah, it's it's the Melian dialogue for those IR nerds who are listening here, um, just applied to the Israel-Palestine conflict. Right. Uh, but for those of us who have been committed to a kind of just two-state solution for a while, and you know, I grew up in a Jewish Zionist left-wing household, that was like our mantra growing up. This is, this is a slap in the face.
4: And so, really quickly, I mean, the Trump administration had been pretty explicit leading up to the release that, look, Israel is has the advantage and, and Palestine does not. And therefore, it kind of has to accept some of these terms. It, it mirrors, or if not, you know, lends credence to that. that that's the argument, at least the thinking um, in, within the White House. I, I'm not an expert on this situation, but I am focused a lot on Trump's foreign policy, uh, sort of from a bigger stance. And And I've talked to Jen about this. I kind of see this from the view of like it's yet another maximum pressure campaign by the by the Trump presidency. Oh, I like
2: that, but just on the Palestinians. But on the Palestinians, yeah, Yeah. like
4: it's you know, again, this is kind of like giving uh, Palestine an ultimatum—a really something that is is, that the hope is would scare them so much that they would come to the table. And look, it's one thing to do that against uh, a nuclear power like North Korea. It's another thing to do it uh, against Iran, which you know supports terrorism and, and has missile program and, and might someday want a nuclear weapon. And it's nothing to do it against Venezuela for, uh, to, it's a, it's a more tenuous situation, but, uh, a leader that has completely decimated his country. And, uh, there's another opposition leader who's has the respect of, of, you know, tens of other countries, but to do it against Palestinians is morally repugnant. Um, you know, they, they, there's just nothing. It's not like they're really going against a lot of aims. Of course, Hamas, yes, but, you this is not a design—this kind of design just doesn't really make sense for this situation.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's exactly right. It's—what uh, what is so alarming and striking about what you just described is, of course, the power dynamics. Right. Um, Israel is a regional superpower. It is a nuclear power. It is the only nuclear power in the region. It has the most powerful military in the region— Uh, by far. I think that no one would question that, and it has for a very long time. And the United States is committed to maintaining that, you know, in the wonky lingo, qualitative and quantitative edge uh, that Israel has in in terms of its security. Uh, And the Palestinians are a a subject population. They are occupied. Their lives are controlled almost every aspect uh, by not just the Israeli government, but by the Israeli army. Um, and uh, that huge power imbalance uh, is, is reflected in this, uh, in this plan. And I think what makes it so egregious is, is that it's, in, it's trying to institutionalize that imbalance and trying to get Palestinians to sign on to it. Um, it's one thing to say, look, you lost, you're the weaker party, you have to make compromises. Uh, and it's another thing to try to, to couch that as somehow peace. Uh, Israel is already implementing this plan. And so from a Palestinian standpoint, it's it's the status quo with the promise of, you know, this astronomical and highly unrealistic $50 billion uh, in aid in in order to sweeten the pot. And let's not forget the Dead Sea Resort, right, which, which I'm sure
2: the Trump company
3: would be very happy to staff and fund. Right. And that's one reason why they, they rolled out the economic part before right. the political plan is— is this is the key incentive in their view, um, because politically it doesn't offer much. It it really um, is a, a, an extension of the status quo uh, with some cosmetic changes, I should add, with the potential promise of some cosmetic changes down the road if Palestinians behave. So there's not a lot of incentive there for Palestinians um, because it's not all that different from, from the status quo. And what it's, asking Palestinians to do is to permanently surrender, not just militarily, but to permanently give up uh, their most basic rights and to agree to live as a subject population um, that is still controlled by Israel. They can call it a state, but a state is a word that has meaning. And if a state doesn't have real sovereignty, yes, it's true, lots of states have limits on on their sovereignty, but there are no states that have um, uh, no sovereignty. Um, that's one thing to have limitations. It's another thing to simply erase the idea of sovereignty and, and self-determination.
5: Yeah. Um, just to jump in really quickly, I want to make sure the listeners are clear. We, we kind of touched on it earlier when you said there was a, a, Israel would have the security blanket, but I want to make it clear what the, the actual plan says just for people who understandably probably didn't read the 80 page long plan. Uh, it sounds like a real estate brochure. So it basically tells this future state of Palestine that, yeah, you you can have your state. You can have—you can call it your state. You can have your capital outside of Jerusalem. But you can never, ever, in perpetuity, ever have a military that could ever threaten Israel, that could— even defend yourself. They can have an internal police force for you know internal purposes, a um, policing. But it also says that Israel can essentially rescind that at any time and take over control. Like it literally spells out in detail. This isn't just us being hyperbolic. It, it literally spells out in detail that eventually you won't even you know you won't even have a state right away eventually and you know Khalid i think you put it perfectly if you behave we heard jared kushner say in one of his interviews he was doing after the plan came out um, something to the effect of and i'm paraphrasing but it's close um the palestinians can earn their independence and earn their dignity which i think really put it in pretty stark terms for a lot of people that The idea that humans would have to earn dignity, that they don't inherently have dignity, uh, is probably one of the most offensive things I've ever heard uh, from a government, and I've heard some pretty offensive things. And it really just showed, I think, the world and in particular Palestinians just how much, you know, how little value the administration puts on their lives and on their value. That's one thing that people noted throughout the text, actually, right. if you
2: read it, is its discussion of the Palestinians is remarkably condescending, not not just in Jared's interviews, but in right. the actual text of the plan, the way that it refers to them, especially in the refugee question. I found that section to be particularly condescending in the way that it's phrased.
3: Yeah, by. it's it's absolutely true. And it's a sort of plan that you come up with when you don't see Palestinians as having any real legitimate history or narrative or uh, or or even basic rights um, and so there is an element of dehumanization that that is sort of been so internalized that it's completely unconscious frankly in in broader American political culture but certainly on the far right, um, uh, both in Israel and in, in the United States, and, and that's reflected in this plan. This is a plan that doesn't even recognize the notion of Palestinian agency or the value of Palestinian agency. Um, Palestinians are, you know, and you know the, the 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 interviews with with Kushner are almost unbearable in that sense. Um, the 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 level of contempt that he expresses for for Palestinians is is really apparent. Um, and uh, it's it's, you know, like I said, it's reflected in in all of the details of uh, of this plan. So I want to take a quick break
2: right now. And then when we come back after uh, our lovely advertisements, we will talk about where Israelis and Palestinians go next uh, after this plan.
0: Support for this episode comes from Viator. Sure. A good souvenir is always fun Make memories that will last forever with Viator. Download the Viator app now and use code VIATOR10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences
1: you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around generative AI.
2: Welcome back, listeners. One thing that that struck me uh, when we were talking earlier is when you, Khaled, were talking about the sort of Israeli political divide on that. I was in Israel-Palestine November roughly on a reporting trip for a feature that look out for. It should be coming out before the Israeli elections in March. Uh, and and I've been talking to some of my contacts on the Israeli side after this plan came out who are – especially the ones on, on the real hardcore anti-occupation left. It's a small dwindling number of Israelis, but they're still – some of them are are, are there, right? And they're they're not just dismissing this as a plan that's unlikely to happen, right? They are scared, I think, is is scared and frustrated and like a sort of ironic, resigned fury, depending on who you're talking to about it. And the reason why is that they see this. As as, as a green light for changing the parameters of what's acceptable inside Israeli politics. That in the past, you needed to abide by the sort of general American set out terms of two states negotiated by the two sides. But now with a blueprint that so heavily favors Israel, they are concerned that there will be no one in Israeli politics will be able to walk it back to say the Americans offered us – this thing and now we can settle for less than that. Uh, and so while it is the case that there is still a, a representation of this kind of Zionist left view in Israeli politics, it's it's much, much, much smaller. It used to be dominant and now it's small. and there's the there are the Arab parties uh, that obviously uh, third largest block right now in Israel's Knesset and um, or Parliament, and they reject the the plan in its entirety. It seems that the the mainstream in the way the college was talking about has been shifted so far right that i don't I don't know how we how we undo the damage that is done in terms of what Israelis believe they're entitled to by the mere act of offering this plan
5: right. And I think you saw that. I think it's really important. when President Trump uh, on Tuesday was Tuesday, I have no concept of time. When President Trump on Tuesday uh, at the White House, basically unveiled this plan. He was standing next to Benjamin Netanyahu, and he, uh, Trump made, you know, a lot of broad statements in this big grand speech, and then Netanyahu spoke. And if you listen closely to what he said, he said very clearly that essentially the United States has finally recognized that Israel has legal and historical claims to Judea and Samaria, which is that Netanyahu, in reading this plan, in hearing the words that the Trump administration was saying— interpreted that to be America has finally agreed that these settlements in parts of the West Bank and other parts of, of what is occupied Palestine are not only not illegal, they're legal, uh, they're also—we have a historic claim to it, right? This is the the kind of Israeli far-right, you know, dream, is to hear an American president say that. Now, Trump didn't actually say those words, but in the plan, by saying that in this agreement— that Israel would annex this 30 percent of the West Bank, Bibi came out, Benjamin Netanyahu came out and said, look, this is how we interpret it. And I think that was such a stark moment for me. It was like right then I saw, okay, that's it. Like they are going to to annex this. They feel like they just got the green light. And sure enough, he said that his cabinet is going to vote on Sunday on Annexation of that chunk of the West Bank,
3: um, but but it's interesting because on the one hand you're right. I mean that that's taken directly uh, out of the out of the plan that uh, they are acknowledging that Israel has a legal and historical claim to all of this land, right. and therefore anything that they give up is a concession right. on their part, and extraordinarily magnanimous, and Palestinians should be grateful. Um, and so denying—the the flip side of that, of course, is denying that Palestinians have any legitimate historical or legal claim. Exactly. Um, not just that it's debatable or disputed, but but it doesn't exist. And they are there by the sufferance of Israel uh, and the enormous magnanimity and generosity uh, of the Israeli state. Um, so that comes out. But what's what I find remarkable about that is that these are the very same people who Jared Kushner is going around saying— We can't look at the past. You have to divorce yourself from the past. That's how you have to look at this plan. Um, So on the one hand, he's saying Israel has a historical claim, but history doesn't matter. Um, What he actually means is, Palestinian history doesn't matter. Right. Only our view of, of of Israel and the Zionist narrative and that history matters. Um, and they're also saying that Israel has a legal claim, but at the same time are saying international law no longer matters. That's the fundamental contradiction. And that what makes this plan such a farce is that whatever broad principles they lay out are so— uh, so easily, and uh, uh, co- they simply contradict themselves um, at, at at every level. I just want to point out also, it's important to remember, you know, we can criticize this plan all day and all night, and, and many of us do. But it's important to remember how we got here. The Trump plan did not emerge in a vacuum. And there's real continuity if we look at uh, 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 past administrations. And this was a a a major theme in my book um, uh, in which I basically lay out the case for um, uh, how previous administrations Uh, paved the path for Trump to do exactly what he could, what he did. Uh, Past administrations said things like, settlements are bad. Uh, But you know what, Israel, go ahead and build in these areas that you and I agree on. You can build in the settlements. You can build in Jerusalem. You can build for natural growth. You can build um, in uh, in the settlement blocks. So they carved out all these loopholes. Um, They said 242, uh, the resolution, UN Security Council Resolution 242 means uh, Israel has to end its occupation. Um, but you know what? Um, you can take your time and you can define what that means uh, on, on your own terms. And maybe you don't have to fully end your occupation um, and uh, or fully withdraw from territory as international law requires. So they made all of these compromises along the way and basically allowed Trump to say, um, look, that old approach didn't work. It didn't work not because the vision was wrong, but because, of, uh, because previous administrations basically contradicted their own vision and undermined their own process. Um, uh, and so I think that's an important distinction to make, is it's true that the previous administrations failed and the old approach failed, but what was problematic about it was that approach, that contradiction of ignoring the own rulebook of their own peace process. Uh, but the vision itself was was acceptable the idea of a two-state solution, the idea that Palestinians would finally have an end to occupation and and gain sovereignty and self-determination. Um, but what Trump has done is sort of uh, uh, continued the same approach while doing away with even the the pretense that there's a a rule book at all.
5: yeah, and we're going to link to your book in the show notes. Um and I wanted to note we didn't tell listeners uh, this earlier, but you actually previously uh, in your life uh, served as an advisor to the Palestinian leadership in Ramallah uh, on permanent status negotiations with Israel. So uh, 2004 to 2009. Okay. So that's
2: an interesting time. Yeah.
5: um, Yeah, So I Mm -hmm. wanted to ask you as we kind of wrap up, because you obviously have some insight into what the Palestinian leadership at least at one time was thinking, um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on where do the Palestinians go from here? Um, You know, when we talk about the Palestinians, I mean, both the Palestinian leadership of Mahmoud Abbas uh, in the West Bank, um, but also Hamas, the, you know, organization that rules uh, with an iron fist, Gaza. Um, So what do they do, you know, going forward? What are you, you know, expecting to see? What do you think is going to be their response? I mean, we've already seen their initial response. Abbas basically came out and said, you know, our land is not for sale. Palestinians are not for sale and categorically rejected it. Um, But more broadly going forward in terms of strategy, in terms of what what do, what do they do next?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think uh, Abbas's leadership is trying to do a couple things in the short term. Uh, we should expect him to go to the United Nations and try to get a resolution condemning the plan and and sort of reaffirming the international uh, legal uh, norms uh, of the peace process uh, and, and the Palestinian rights more generally. Um, he'll try to get statements from Arab states. So he'll go to Egypt, he'll go to Saudi, Uh, And try to get them to come out strongly, uh, maybe do something with the Arab League um, in the short term. And all the while trying to get other countries to recognize a Palestinian state. That's the thrust of the leadership's strategy right now is to preempt all of this by getting West European countries in particular to recognize Palestinian statehood. Over the long term, that's where we have a problem because there isn't a strategy or a vision that this Palestinian leadership or really even the one in, in Gaza has for both ending the occupation and bringing about Palestinian statehood. Uh, uh, that has been the case for a very long time. Uh, it's just much more exposed now that we would no longer have the pretense of a two-state solution or or something called a peace process, that they could— you know, in the past, they could hang their hat on that. Now that's not even there, and they're sort of flailing. Uh, I think the first order of business for Palestinians is going to have to be to close ranks and to uh, to fix their house. I think one of the conditions that has allowed uh, a plan like this to go forward uh, is uh, is the, the fact that you have a dysfunctional and divided Palestinian leadership. That's highly, highly problematic. It It's a classic colonial— a paradigm of divide and rule. Uh, it's so very easy to play one party off the other, and Israel does it, uh, I think, with uh, with great um, uh, efficiency and effectiveness. Um, so the Palesti- these Palestinian leaderships, both the PA in the West Bank and Hamas in Gaza, have allowed themselves to be played, um, and and have lost sight of the bigger picture. I think that's a real source of frustration for ordinary Palestinians, both inside Palestine and outside. So I, I think if the Palestinians want to confront this, they have to, um, uh, they have to somehow revive their, their national politics, reform their institutions, uh, and, and basically fix their house first. And then from there, they could go on and decide, well, maybe we just abandon the idea of two states and and demand equal uh, rights in, in one state. Uh, Or they decide to stick with a a two-state solution and pursue some diplomatic uh, plan. But none of that's possible in the current state of disarray that we see Palestinians in. Um, And it's entirely possible that uh, Palestinians, when they take to the streets against this plan, um, could very easily direct their anger toward the Palestinian leadership at the very same moment, and that's a real risk for uh, for the leadership.
4: I interviewed a couple of experts, but one in particular, and we'll, we'll link to the show notes about what Palestine would would do next or Palestinians would do next. And and the big conclusion I got is that actually this peace plan will end up strengthening Hamas uh, at least in the short term, because as Khalid rightly mentioned, you know. A- Abbas is weak. That whole – the Palestinian Authority is weak. They, they they A lot of them have pushed for diplomacy. But right now with the Trump administration basically taking a diplomatic solution off the table for the time being, well, those who advocate for a sort of violent response, Hamas and Gaza, might have uh, the upper hand in the short term. Um, because the, the PA's sort of main strategy at the moment is going to be to keep conditions kind of before – kind of as they were before this peace plan came out, and outweigh Trump, right? The, we have the, he has the election in November. If he loses, well, then you're going to have a Democrat who will be much more sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. Well, like, I mean, more than Trump. I Much, much I less think it's, hostile to the Palestinians. Yes, I think that's, that's, that's right. better. Right. That, that's more accurate. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. M- l- less hostile. Um, and so, like, that's going to be the plan going forward. But this is, I think those that's attention to look out for, is how... The the Palestinian Authority continues to try to go back to to what it was before uh, this week, while Hamas tries to gain some strength I, I, as and 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 outmaneuver the more diplomacy focused yeah, leadership. Thing
5: I've always um, and it's a really good point. Um, one thing that I've always kind of been frustrated by is, you know, from from observing this conflict for a long time is that, you know, every time that the Palestinian leadership tries to take some international outlet or take some diplomatic outlet, right, they go to the, to you know, the international bodies and say, hey, can we get recognition? They go to the U.N. and say, hey, can you, you know, do something about settlements? Um, they go, you know, say, hey, we'll participate in this peace process and this peace process and this negotiation and that negotiation. And it seems like, you know, every time that it's the U.S., um, that, that will block that avenue, right? Say, no, I'm sorry, you can't go to the international community because you guys need to deal with this and, you know, the two of you. So, but don't bring the international community in. We're going to block these resolutions on settlements. Um, and just to remind people, Obama did block the resolution on settlements till the very end of his administration when for the first time he decided to abstain. But it was like the last days— mm-hmm of his administration, he decided to abstain, and that's the resolution condemning the settlements passed. But, you know, like Khalid mentioned, you know, even previous administrations, including Obama, did have these mixed messages when it came to settlements and, and Israel. Um, and so the problem is that, you know, the more you cut off these legitimate, peaceful, diplomatic avenues, the fewer avenues are left besides violent resistance, right? Right. The more you say, I'm sorry, you can't go to the international community. I'm sorry, you can't actually have these negotiations because we just sided with Israel and you can take this plan or leave it. What's left, right?
3: And you're also not allowed to engage in uh, the most basic uh, form of protest, uh, something like a boycott, uh, which is quintessentially American uh, in terms of our, our civil rights movement, our, our history, the history of civil disobedience, boycotts are an essential form of, of speech. Whether you agree with it or not, whether it's effective or not, it's a different matter. Right. Um, but, but it's absolutely true that uh, diplomatic avenues have been closed off. Uh, all forms of nonviolent resistance uh, are delegitimized. Uh, and so it really uh, corners. I mean, of course, the aim is to force Palestinians under duress, right. as a lawyer would say, uh, to negotiate uh, on the terms uh, dictated by the, the stronger side. Um, and and so, I mean, it's pretty clear that even if you were to get some sort of a quizzling Palestinian leadership that would sign on the dotted line, that would be an unsustainable agreement right. in any case. Palestinians would reject it. Um, uh, you know, we've we've seen these kinds of colonial Projects in the past where they try to set up a new leadership that is more moderate, more malleable, um, and it doesn't it doesn't work. So, uh, you know, this is uh, this is what what you know. I, I'm happen to believe that the ball is now in the Palestinian court. It is up to them. It is not up to the Arab states. It's not up to the Europeans uh, to save a two-state solution. If in fact that's what they want, it is up to them. Uh, they have to to sort of capitalize on their own agency, and and as I said, fix their own house first, and then and, and then they will be able, uh, uh, I think, to undertake uh, any number of of uh, diplomatic or political uh, uh, courses. But it all starts with first kind of having a, a unitary and cohesive Palestinian political entity of some sort. When we talk about agency, there's agency on
2: both sides, right? Like the Israelis are not just a fixed object whose goal is solely to crush the life out of the Palestinians. I don't want that to be the the picture that our listeners have leaving. There are deep and profound political divisions inside – Israel. Mm -hmm. And it's worth injecting another note of nuance here because while it's true that the two major parties, blue and white, the center-right party, and Likud, the right-wing party in government, uh, have both accepted the plan, blue and white has been very subtle in their messaging about it. They've pushed for a parliamentary vote on their plan knowing it will fracture the Israeli right internally because the hardcore settler right – wants to reject this plan entirely because it recognizes the idea of a Palestinian state. Uh, they have suggested they want to interp- they want to push for annexation of Palestinian land, but only in conjunction with any kind of, uh, some kind of international consensus or agreement from other countries, which will not happen. The United States is not alone, or the United States is not enough, at least in the messaging and the way they've described it, which would indicate that they wouldn't actually do the annexation. I'm not trying to set them up as... Uh, sort of morally pure or like peaceniks. They aren't. Um, But the Israeli elections in March – are really important for the state of this plan. How a prime minister Netanyahu with an empowered right-wing government who finally wins re-election and is able to get rid of the ongoing legal case against himself would handle this peace plan is I think quite different from a government led by Blue and White's Benny Gantz, especially if his coalition partners end up being some combination of the left-wing or center-left parties with tacit support – from the outside from the arab parties which is he's ruled out but israeli politics is weird lots of things could happen differently
5: <laughs> that's the understatement yeah. of the year yeah
3: I, I think the core difference yeah. would between the blue and white bloc on the one hand and then netanyahu's uh ruling coalition on the other is in terms of annexation if if netanyahu wins becomes prime minister setting aside his court case i think we're much more likely to see de jure Um, uh, formal annexation on some level, particularly in the areas, the 30% of the West Bank that the Trump administration has given them. Um, If the Blue and White Coalition wins, I think that may become somewhat less likely, but uh, still still a possibility. Uh, Certainly. It's a difference... Um, you know, Yehuda Shaul uh, of the Breaking Silence was in town, and and um, yeah, I've seen him, him speak last week
1: too. Yeah, <laughs> a
3: couple times. And his analysis of the, of Israeli politics, I think, is very apt. And that is, there's there's the there's basically two camps. There's the control camp, the one that wants to maintain indefinite control over Palestinians and the land, um, uh, more or less in perpetuity. Uh, and then there are those who want to formally annex it. So there is a control camp and there is an annexation camp, and so that's basically where Israeli politics is. It's whether the occupation will continue as de facto, uh, uh, on a de facto basis, uh, and 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 ultimately de facto apartheid, or whether it will be de jure uh, apartheid. Um, so. I'm not sure from a Palestinian standpoint whether there would be, a, there's a whole lot of difference there.
2: Although, I don't know. When I met with him, I met with him in Israel and also when he was here too. He also illustrated that there was a, there's a third camp, there's the peace camp, which is in very, dire, very tiny dire and not really strait. represented in the Knesset. No, there's a small number of them. It's very true. Uh, but it's also the case, in, in Yehuda's view and the sort of more optimistic people on the Israeli left, that control doesn't just mean permanent control over palestinian land it means
3: security it means control over israeli affairs well, of course affairs it's justified in the language yeah. of security yeah. but but what it means on the ground is control over palestinian lives
2: right but it that also could be depending on the correct forces the international forces and balance of power and pressure put on israel could militate in a direction of backing away
3: from the yes. de
2: facto international that you're pressure
3: can, in fact, change Israel's behavior. And it is the only way to change Israel's behavior um, because Israel right now has no incentive either for a two-state solution or a one-state solution, both of which involve giving up a measure of power and privilege for the Israeli Jewish majority, um, and which is, not frankly, not that appealing. And so why would they give up privilege and power unless they are compelled to by outside forces And have an incentive, or in some cases a disincentive, uh, from continuing to maintain the status quo.
2: I would love to do a whole other episode with Khaled about what this international pressure could look like and if there's any possible optimistic take on the world's most depressing political issue. But for now, I want to thank you very much, Khaled, for coming in and talking with us. I really, really appreciate you taking your time. Thanks Uh, for having me. Hope you have another book coming out because (laughs) the first (laughs) one did great. Not not Um, soon. Uh, and, uh, as always, I want to thank our engineer, Malachi Brodus, our producer, Jackson Bierfeldt, and I want to encourage you to rate and subscribe and review Worldly, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye.
1: Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini-series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around, generative AI. Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry.